Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers. I am Andy Zaltzman. Welcome to issue 4258, sub-episode A, for April is not only the cruelest month, it's also the month in which this year we're taking the first week off. A number of reasons why we're not doing a full Bugle this week. One, so I can lock myself in the shed and simply let the return of the English cricket season radiate nothing but good vibes into this troubled world. And two, because everyone's off work and off school because of some 2,000-year-old court case or other. Uh, I can't remember what the charge was, messianic in charge of a donkey or something like that, if I remember correctly. Now, knowing this was coming, we did bank some extra stories last week, timeless stories that are just as relevant now as they were seven days ago, if not even more so. The environment, plus British men going on holiday and getting wasted. You'll be hearing those from me, Felicity Ward and Nish Kumar. After that, we'll have some classic clips from The Bugle as heard in our Top Stories podcast. Subscribe now via the internet of some sort, plus some fine recent moments from our sibling shows, The Gargle with Alice Fraser and Catharsis with Tiffany Stevenson. But let's start with me, Nish and Felicity with The Environment, which has hired a lawyer. More end-of-the-world news now, and, uh, well, climate is still not going away, and the world's top court, the International Court of Justice, uh, it will, for the first time, advise on nations' legal obligations to fight climate change, uh, following uh, a motion from Vanuatu, the tiny Pacific island nation, that is rather more concerned about rising sea levels than, for example, landlocked, mountainous Andorra, <laughs> or quite a lot of land to spare America, or seldom on fire or underwater UK. But this could be a, well, it could be a, well, a, a key moment in humanity's fight to survive the climate catastrophe, because obviously international law being sacred and inviolable and being observed by all governments around the world, I think we can pretty much assume that the environment is now fixed and move on to something else. Yes, safe. <laughs> Good call. Good yep. call. Where is the world court, do you know? Um, well, it's just... In space? Well, it should be. It'll get more objective. More <laughs> objectivity. Well, it's based... Uh, the views are amazing from HQ. <laughs> it is actually based in the Netherlands. So, oh. I mean, I guess if you want to have a world court, you want it in a country with legalised weed, <laughs> just to sort of take the edge off. I can't imagine some of the cases that are landing on the desk of the world court. You just need to smoke a blunt to take the edge <laughs> off some of those details. Is that the Hague? Is that the same thing? Yes. Yeah, the Hague. It is the Hague. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that the world court? The Hague. It is the Hague. Oh, okay. Well, if you'd said that, if you'd said the Hague, I would have got it. <laughs> I mean, does anyone care? Would any like? Does the justice system anywhere mean anything? I don't mean to be a cynic, but I am. <laughs> like, I I don't know a. Uh, a country where people are like, yeah, our justice system, pretty good. <laughs> We've done it. We've fixed it. We've figured out how to do it. So, like, a, the UN, <laughs> Australia breached, like, over 500 human rights with their offshore detention centres. Mm. Um, nothing happened. Well, that's, it's not true to say that nothing happened. Something did happen is that we in Britain took one look at that and thought, oh, you're onto something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get Rwanda on the on the phone. <laughs> the ICJ, uh, so the Prime Minister of Vanuatu, uh, Ishmael Kosaka, said that it was a historic resolution at the beginning of a new era in multilateral climate cooperation. Uh, and it's to, he said that it placed, and uh, Ishmael said that it placed the human rights and intergenerational equity at the forefront of climate decision making. The ICJ has reacted uh, by saying that it will now have two years to consider its view. Oh, sure. Take a couple of years with this. <laughs> ah. Why not? 
Why the hell not? <laughs> They've got time. It's it is such a bizarre thing to be presented by information about climate change from a country that is literally sinking and be like, we're going to need 24 months. <laughs> we're on the clock. Yeah. <laughs> we are on the clock, you guys. But it does show, doesn't it, something about you know the, the state of the planet and our species again, that, that what is needed is legal obligations because having a planet where life is viable just doesn't seem to be enough of an incentive no. to get people... To do something. It reminds me, actually, when I was visited by a magic genie who said to me, Andy, love your work, I'm going to grant you eternal health and happiness. And I replied, yeah, but what's in it for me? And <laughs> continued hitting myself in my kneecaps with a crowbar as was my God-given right. So, um, Obviously, that's a joke. Because <laughs> a genie would never say that he loved your work. England! Jorge Vinuales. Uh, professor of Law and Environmental Policy at Cambridge University, who drafted the legal question that went in front of the court, said, it cannot be possible that destroying the planet is legal. And for a professor of law, that is charmingly naive. (laughs) All the things we've unexpectedly discovered are either legal or not completely illegal. I mean, that's... He shouldn't be surprised by that, should you? No, I mean, that is... I mean, that is naive... Beyond belief. I mean, it's, not, it's not only legal, it's absolutely legendary. <laughs> I mean, they'll let anyone into Cambridge these days. <laughs> it used to be for the for the white boys with, with rich parents, but these days, you know, anyone can get a degree. I mean, this is why we have a legal system, right? If we didn't have a legal system, we'd all just be speeding around wearing stolen clothes. <laughs> like, that is, this is specific. And, and clearly, we cannot be trusted to regulate ourselves. Every time they have any any sort of resolution they're like try and stick to it nobody sticks to it and everybody moves on and they're like all right well maybe we could just lower our expectations collectively <laughs> that's the like, shopping yeah. trolley theory isn't it where if you the, the yeah. shopping trolleys that if you leave a um uh that it's an example of if humans were left to look after themselves and to follow common sense and civility and thinking about others they still leave shopping trolleys all over the f-ing car park <laughs> they dent other people's cars they drive off they don't leave a note <laughs> that's who we are <laughs> uh, antonio guterres the uh, big cheese at the un these days um <laughs> he said um last week the climate time bomb is ticking but it's not a time bomb. Yeah, it's already blown up. It's, well, exactly. It's some kind of radioactive warhead that is not only ticking, but already leaching deadly substances and occasionally partially exploding. So I think he's underplayed it there. He also said humanity is on thin ice and that ice is melting fast. But, yep, yeah, we've always found a way of hopping on a passing penguin and bird surfing to safety. So <laughs> Bird surfing. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Let's, let's not uh, jump into hasty action that we might regret. Um Uh, In Switzerland, uh, more than 2,000 women with an average age of 73 are taking the government to court, claiming the government's policy on climate change is violating their right to life. Um, One of the campaigners uh, was quoted as saying, we don't want to die just because the Swiss government has not been successful in coming up with a decent climate policy. To be honest, you don't really want to die because of anything a Swiss government has done. I think that would be disappointing. (laughs) If you were just your last thoughts were going through your mind and you're blaming the Swiss government, that's that's just not good, is it? It's not it's not great. No. I mean, yeah, I'm not gonna make that joke, but the, yeah. the Swiss government do have some things of other people that they might be angry about, is all I'm saying. The colour is gold, the things are teeth. 
<laughs> One of the campaigners said, some people say, why are you complaining? You're going to die anyway. But I mean, that's true of everything. <laughs> that's true of en- yeah. e- literally any complaint. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, uh, e- e- why are you complaining about the quality of the food I just served you at this restaurant? You're going to die yeah. anyway. Like, it's a sort of I'm catch-all t- excuse. No, it's how you calm a crying baby, isn't it? We're saying, you know, <laughs> we're all going to die, we're all buddy. Die. <laughs> we're just dusting the window history. It, it's what I yell at audiences having bad times with my kids. <laughs> It's like if you burnt someone's house down yeah. and they came home from holiday, you're like, you burnt my house down. I was like, well, we're all going to die anyway. Aren't we? <laughs> Can't take me to cook, buddy. <laughs> That's the thing when you're, when you're a pensioner. You've got time to take the Swiss government to court. That's what I'll be doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm busy now. <laughs> Once Frankie's out of the house, I'll be having a chat to the Swiss government, doing some Googles. <laughs> Heat-related mortality in people over the over sixty-five in Europe in the last twenty years has increased by more than thirty percent. Wow! It does seem like something we should at least have a little look into. I no. mean, it, not it, only are the ice caps dying, <laughs> but pensioners in Europe. Yeah, is that just not not just because of the increased quality of woolly jumpers keeping people warm? <laughs> well, you think woolly jumpers are getting so good that people are boiling to death? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Super sheep. <laughs> I blame heat tech. <laughs> I blame Big Marino. <laughs> Obviously, you know, if the world does end, um, England will not be affected because England is not so much a, a country as a as a concept, as a state of being a dream. Um, but despite that, um, the government's advisers have said that England as a country is not ready for the impacts of, of global global warming. Um I would flip that around and say, is the environment ready for the unavoidable impact of England? (laughs) It hasn't been. But also I would say, can you truly prepare yourself for something like this? I see it in a very English way as being like penalty shootouts. Yes, you can make plans, you can practice, you can prepare yourself for every eventuality, you can groove your technique, but you'll probably still blast it over the f***ing car under pressure. So what's the f***ing point? I'll say this as a person living in England in terms of England not being ready for climate change. England, after 13 years of Tory governments, is not ready for anything. (laughs) It's the last day of March. I'm here to tell you England is not ready for April. (laughs) April could destroy this entire country. We have absolutely no preparations for anything after more than a decade of underinvestment. Now, the only way I can get this across in the most serious terms possible is that the report has singled out, it's talked about a lot of stuff that climate change could, uh, we're unprepared for in terms of our flood defences, in terms of various different elements, but the only way I can get this across and how serious the situation is, is the report has singled out England's internet networks as being woefully underprepared for climate change, despite their crucial importance. Climate change is now threatening our ability to see pornography. And (laughs) that might be the only way we finally convince people you might not be able to leave a hateful YouTube comment. (laughs) Climate change is threatening the future of the bugle. What does the bugle rely on? (laughs) The internet. Both for for its distribution and for the ceaseless streams of bullshit it discusses. (laughs) I mean, England isn't ready or the UK is not ready for weather let alone climate change. (laughs) A single snowflake brings the entire train network to its knees in this country. Anything other than 12 and drizzle, schools are shut, roads are closed, 
Tra- track work's happening, road work's happening. I've been caught in three road works this morning and they're still patching up the snow from December. <laughs> this country is f***ed. <laughs> it's an island. Like, you might not be Vanuatu, but you're still an island. You're going down <laughs> You're going under. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, you've been a, been a citizen of this country for, well, as we discussed, just over over a year, mm. and already achieved a truly British <laughs> level of disdain for this country. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations, you're fitting in beautifully. Well, uh, look, that is also part of being a colony: is that you are born with a general hatred of the empire. <laughs> Well, first, actually, you're born with a love of the empire that you don't know that you harbour, and then you read, and then you go, oh, no, it's actually hatred. Uh, in other uh, British news, also relating to uh, the aforementioned uh, Netherlands, Amsterdam uh, has launched a new advertising campaign to try to dissuade British people from going there. Um not all British people, specifically British people aged 18 to 35, predominantly male who go for uh, maybe not so much for the art galleries. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair, fair to say. Um, uh, please uh, rest assured, Amsa, because there's been a lot of complaints about the behaviour of British people overseas in various places. Um, what? Uh, and <laughs> but, you know, rest assured, Amsterdam, we are also inflicting these excesses on ourselves in our own towns and it's not just you don't think you're so f***ing special um the problem is you uh british-based uh, travel agencies are offering for example stag weekends in amsterdam that include unlimited alcohol canal boat cruises steak and strip nights off oh, they don't crawls, go together <laughs> pump crawls around the red light district and a series of lectures on the history of dutch painting from the renaissance to impressionism taking the world's wonderful museums in which everyone has to down a double vodka shot every time they see a self-portrait or someone in a strange hat. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, people are, are losing patience with the British tradition of um, going overseas and vomiting everywhere. I'll say this. If we could have had a time machine, India could have used a campaign to keep <laughs> British men away in the 18th century. That's all I'll say. That's all 18 I'll to 35-year-old yeah, yeah, men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I'll also say is this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, about a decade ago, Amsterdam's mayor invited... It, sorry, about a decade ago, Amsterdam's then mayor invited his London counterpart to see what British tourists were getting up to. Um, and he said things like, uh, they don't wear a coat as they slide on through the red light district, they sing You'll Never Walk Alone, they're dressed as rabbits or priests, and sometimes they're not dressed at all. I'd love him to witness it. Unfortunately, his counterpart at the time was Boris Johnson, <laughs> who was, let's face it, thrilled to be invited to a sleazy weekend in Amsterdam. He was probably one of those people walking around with no trousers or pants on in the red light district. Mate. You can't invite the nation's ultimate fan to a fest. <laughs> a fan. Also, I mean, I do think, you know, we're, we're trying to be more open-minded as a, as a species, more tolerant of each other's cultures. Mm. And yet... You know, here that is, has not reached Britain. Andrew. Well, here is here is Amsterdam failing to respect our national British culture of drinking ourselves to a comforting level of oblivion and desecrating other people's homelands. It's what our nation was built on. It's true. Have some fucking respect. Look, when Amsterdam launched the campaign that said "Stay away, young British men," I just thought, 
Je suis Amsterdam. <laughs> 18 to 35-year-old British men, please stay away from me. Thank you so much. Especially if you're drinking, you're looking for drugs, you're looking for pussy. None of those things are here. Because <laughs> Club 1830 was, was you know, kind of well-known for you know, young British people going overseas from... You know, largely sort of drinking, sex-based holidays. But actually, people thought it was because that, that, was, that was the age range they were aiming at. Actually, it was because that was the year that they were modelling themselves <laughs> on in terms of British behaviour overseas. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of British behaviour overseas, taking a piss in a canal is pretty low down the list. It's, 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 a, it's a long gap to the Mau Mau, the, the way that they dealt with the Mau Maus and Clive of India. It's a, it's a big old jump down from there. Yeah. So Cal- they should be lucky they're only pissing in their canals. We're, we're actually getting better and better yeah, over yeah. time. Also, I mean, let's not forget, you know, what Britain is as a nation. Young British people might be urinating in the streets and vomiting in the canals of Amsterdam, but it's British Waz and British Chunder, which makes it magic. You know, use, use, we are donating... Our magic to you, Netherlands, if you only learn to harness it. I would definitely invite a government delegation from the Netherlands to come to Leicester Square on a Friday or Saturday night and see that it is not only other countries we have no respect for. (laughs) It's our own. I've seen a man pissing next to a urinal. Not into the urinal, (laughs) next to a urinal. Okay? We we hate ourselves as much as we hate any of you people. Well, that's because we are true egalitarians. (laughs) Yeah, I think that. I think it was. I think that's an extract from the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> it, I, I, I was actually. I've never been to um, Amsterdam before, and I thought, really? oh, this would be a nice year to take a trip. And then I saw this, and I was like, oh, maybe I should stay away. And then I realised, heartbreakingly, it was eighteen to thirty-five year old men. <laughs> and as a thirty-seven year old man, I am now exempt. And if I'd gone two years ago, you couldn't have kept me out of <laughs> out of those brothels. Oh my god, I'd have been in there like a shot. You're a f- fan. I'm one of the great <laughs> one of the great top ten <laughs> fans of this century. Nish Kumar. Nish Kum Family Has show. that ever been made, that awful cheap joke? I don't know. Surely in high school. Nish Kum <laughs> I, I, I don't actually remember it being made at secondary school, but it does seem like a dereliction of duty of the teenage boys I went to school with. I mean, well, I'm I'm glad that that's been satisfied now. <laughs> well, that was from last week. Let's pop over to history now and a classic moment from the Bugle. It's issue 152, the moment when the rowdy Saudi was compromised to a permanent end. And John Oliver and I delivered his <laughs> eulogy. Top story this week. Ding dong, the is dead but a boom 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 another <laughs> bites the dust shot in the eye and you're to blame you give a bad name this is not so much a tribute episode to bin laden as a special f- eulogy to the big man <laughs> and the and I'm glad you enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, I did thoroughly enjoy it. I <laughs> expect the... to see that in a dictionary near me within two years. <laughs> Andy, you ended the last bugle by saying that after the royal wedding, the world had nothing to look forward to anymore. And while, yes, 
Saturday in itself was quite boring, apart from Chelsea tightening the gap on the Premiership <laughs> title race. You have to admit that Sunday really delivered. <laughs> what with that whole killing of the most wanted terrorist on the planet thing. That's right. Osama bin Laden, the former leader of Al-Qaeda and former living inhabitant of the planet Earth, was forced to surrender both of those titles around the time that a bullet developed a very strong attraction to his face. And he was a tall, handsome man, bin Laden, Andy, but I have to admit that I always thought that he'd, look, he'd have looked even better if he'd considered getting his left eyebrow pierced with a bullet. And I think I was right about that. I think his face was successfully accessorised with a piece of high-speed, pointy metal jewelry. <laughs> it's a funny old world, though, isn't it, John? Because last week, most wanted man in the world. This week, a seriously malfunctioning submarine. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and fish food. So, yeah, it, it just, just goes to show. Upon a slender thread. So, um, you know, he's gone from, uh, you know, he's the leader of the world's most tedious minority interest pressure group. A man five times voted least cuddleable dude by Touchy Feely Monthly magazine. <laughs> the man commonly known as the Rowdy Saudi, Terry the Terrorist, the Mighty Douche, the Tora Bora Law Ignorer, and the Angry Turnip. He had his clogs forcibly popped by American Special Forces. And I do wish that Barack Obama had used those words. Yeah, we absolutely. have popped his clogs. <laughs> it it certainly feels like a much more pleasant globe to live on this week without Bin Laden living on it too. It's like when a terrible neighbour moves away and property prices in adjacent properties automatically go up. By dying, Bin Laden has effectively gentrified this entire planet. <laughs> to prove this, upon news of his death, the stock market went up and oil prices went down, as if collectively everyone agreed that things had just got slightly better. As if the world breathed a sigh of relief and together muttered, Oh, good. That is good. Now, I don't know where you were when you found out, Andy. I'm guessing you were asleep. But uh, I'd just finished watching 60 Minutes and was checking in with the Mets-Phillies game when it right. became clear that something very important was about to happen and the president was going to address the nation. And after watching him announce that America had successfully located and killed... Bin Laden, I started watching the news and then well, I flicked through the channels a couple of hours later to see that the Mets were still playing the Phillies. <laughs> it was the 14th inning and they had resumed the game and most of the crowd was still there. And not only were they still there, they were watching the game with complete concentration. And I've got to say, as a sports fan, I find that so impressive. Remember, this is a meaningless game at the start of May between one team which will challenge for the World Series and one that will not make the playoffs. To care about that at all is a challenge. To care about that when it's just been announced that Bin Laden has been killed is incredible. The CIA's most wanted man has literally just been assassinated and you are rooting for Raul Ibanez to get a base hit. I think my favourite reaction from all this actually came from the Mets manager after the game because you know people in sports just cannot help themselves but speaking cliches and that's never more exposed than in moments of deep genuine significance. And in the post-game press conference Terry Collins said this, he said <clears throat> Well, this is a good win for us, and obviously a huge win for America tonight. <laughs> he should have carried on that thought. You know, I think America really answered the critics tonight. Many have said that, you know, to go on a nine-year streak of not killing bin Laden was a slump we were never going to get out of. But <laughs> I, for one, had nothing but faith in us as a team, and uh, I knew if we just kept swinging, kept focused, we'd get that hit. As for the future, who knows what that holds? I'm just concentrating on a home series against the Giants next week. Thank you, no questions. <laughs> 
I think as well that Al Qaeda had a press conference in which they said, "Well, there's a lot of positives we could take away from this." Obviously, <laughs> we're disappointed to lose Aussie, but uh, it's, we like to see it more as an opportunity for someone else to step up to the plate and deliver. Of course, the best place to have heard the news would undoubtedly have been Tampa, Florida, in the middle of the crowd of a live WWE wrestling event. <laughs> How do I know this? That's a fair question. Because I saw a clip on YouTube of a shirtless John Cena addressing the Tampa crowd <laughs> to deliver the news at the end of a bout, saying, I'm extremely proud after ten months of being your WWE champion. I walk out every night with hustle, loyalty and respect on my sleeve. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that at that point, he was sleeveless. <laughs> he went... He, he went. He went on Are to say, "Not the names of his dogs tattooed onto his arm." <laughs> no, no, no. The the president has just announced. He went on to say that we have caught and compromised to a permanent end, <laughs> Osama bin Laden. <laughs> Andy, that is magnificent rhetoric from the four-time tag team champion, inventor of the twisting belly-to-belly -belly suplex, <laughs> and self-styled doctor of thugonomics. <laughs> In fact, all of those things are true. In fact, if I'm honest, I prefer what John Cena said to the President's speech. Caught and compromised to a permanent end, that is linguistically sensational. In fact, that phrase is not all that the President should have borrowed. I think he should also have walked into the East Room of the White House and said, I walk out every night with hustle, loyalty and respect on my sleeve. I think you should also have done that shirtless in a pair of cut-off jeans holding a wide microphone before leaving to rock music and fireworks. I don't think anyone would have begrudged him that. <laughs> So Barmer, of course, had been watching nervously uh, in the White House on uh, on Skype, I think, uh, supporting his troops by firing an imaginary pistol at his computer screen and shouting "Kapow, Kapow!" as the troops went in, and then uh, announced the uh, the action to the watching world creditably without using words like "We got him," "Mission accomplished," yeah. or "Bag him yeah. and tag him," which yeah. is yeah. not necessarily something his predecessor could have been entrusted with. He didn't even hold two fingers to his mouth and pretend to blow gun smoke away from them before reholstering his fingers and <laughs> winking at the camera, which. <laughs> Which um, some might have seen as an opportunity missed. And of course, you know, there's been some uh, you know, newspaper reaction. Obviously, quite excited. Some of the headlines here. This uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, here's uh, one with a fake that fake picture of uh, Bin Laden's head, uh, headlined Al Sama. Um, also, this article looking at the damage to Al Qaeda caused by the attack under the headline "Ain't No Cure for the Osama Dying Blues," and. <laughs> And oh this, uh, this one here, Man 54 Dies. Doesn't really give the full story. <laughs> but it deals with facts, yeah. Andy. And not only, no, is that not what yeah. you want from print journalism? And another uh, tabloid one, Death in His Vest. Uh, a little play on Death of the West. Claiming uh, mm -hmm. Bin Laden been pinged out whilst wearing a sleeveless T-shirt. Revealing an unexpected tattoo of Mae West leaning over a bucket of soapy water. <laughs> Which I guess the subtext would be, America is the great Satan. I'm guessing, I'm guessing. <laughs> So but it was, it, it was, it, it was a, a kind of personal success for Obama, that seems to be how it's uh, mm -hmm. been, been received. The operation, codenamed variously Operation Shave That Beard, Operation F*** That Shit, Operation <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. Not, not, not sure how we got that name. <laughs> I think I'll have to ask General Petraeus about that one. So more details are trickling out as the story uh, shifts from, uh, from one day to the next. Uh, it does seem now that um, they found Bin Laden with a, a sock on each hand. Uh, putting on a, a sock puppet production of Daisy, uh, Dirty Dancing for his young relatives. 
in order to inculcate in them a lifelong hatred of Western consumerism. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, when the seals came in, he untangled Baby and Johnny and said in his characteristic monotone drawl, did someone order a takeaway and not tell me about it? <laughs> They also found in uh, his children's uh, playroom blackboards with the words George W. Bush is a premium-grade wiener written over and over <laughs> again. And another report suggesting that Bin Laden's last words were, is that a gun in your pocket or are you just pleased to see me? <laughs> <laughs> to which I'm guessing the uh, Navy SEAL said, it's kind of both. <laughs> Obviously, as you as you mentioned, newspapers around the world reacted the next day by plastering Bin Laden as the lead story all over their front page. So credit has to go, as, as uh, Andy and my friend Danny Boy said to us, to the <laughs> Daily Express online, who stuck with their gut, Andy, and they ran the Bin Laden story second, <laughs> behind the headline about Prince William and Kate Middleton foregoing a prenup. I mean, wow. You... Listen, you've just got to give it to them, Andy. It's as simple as that. You have to really, really care about the royal wedding to lead with that two days after the wedding happened over the fact that Bin Laden was literally just shot in the head. That is a royal wedding super fan right there. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe it was Sorry. the two are linked, John. I mean, this it seems clear that, uh, this actually, that the two are linked because uh, on... Uh, on Saturday night, Prince William and Princess Kate were whinging about not receiving a wedding present from the White House, and then they received a <laughs> card on Monday morning saying, Happy wedding, Harrods had sold out of dinner plates, so we killed Bin Laden instead for you. Well, I, you wonder, I wonder if that's where Bin Laden's body actually is. It's like when you have a cat and it kills a bird and leaves it outside your bedroom door as a kind of thank you. I wonder if they woke up in the next morning to see the corpse of Bin Laden lying in front of them. Oh, that's lovely. That's, isn't that nice? Yeah, takes me back to uh, the morning after my wedding. <laughs> let's, let's not delve into that. There are classic clips like that five times a week on our top stories feed. Do subscribe now or else. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what else else. You, 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 won't, you won't hear them. Right, let's join Alice Fraser, Josh Gondelman and Gabe Molika for a recent highlight from The Gargle, focused on... Let me just check the script. Oh, of course, yes, the sex life of cockroaches. Now it's uh, humans f***ing up sex lives business now. This is Mm -hmm. the news uh, that humans' relentless quest to kill off cockroaches with poison has changed the the breeding process of the cockroaches themselves. Uh, Gabe, you look like you've seen a cockroach before. Can you unpack this story for us? I have. I'd I'd love to unpack the story. The story, of course, involves German cockroaches, which have evolved... uh, uh, to to live in human environments. And the way they've done this is uh, typically uh, the way cockroaches reproduce is that the female gets on top of the male, kinky, and then the male has what's being described to me as a telescopic penis, which goes behind and around and has a little hook on it. Uh, and there he offers uh, what's being known as a nuptial gift, which I listened to the article. I didn't just read it, so I knew how to pronounce nuptial. And normally that uh, that sweet chemical slurry is uh, has glucose in it, which means it's sweet. Uh, but for for years we've we've started to use a sweet-like substance uh, to, uh, to to track and kill uh, these cockroaches. But now they've evolved and they've made their nuptial gift less sweet. Uh, so now that there are some females uh, who just like aren't into the sweet stuff anymore. 
and it's made the male cockroaches not be able to uh, mate with them. They're just like not interested. However, that becomes a problem because the male cockroaches have now evolved. They've uh, they've eaten some pineapple. They've changed the uh, they've changed the consistency of their nuptial gift, and uh, and now they're back to getting getting jiggy with it. And they just keep popping up because they know how to change the secret sauce. This is shocking news to me. <laughs> I went to a friend's wedding over the weekend, and my nuptial gift to them was a cutting board. <laughs> so <laughs> humans and cockroaches are much different, I think. <laughs> Cockroach sex is so intense, right? The males hook the females to their body to, to procreate, which sounds problematic, certainly. And they do that because it takes... 90 minutes for the male to release sperm into the female and it's like brag much cockroaches okay sting uh that's kind of okay endurance king uh and it's really wild that we use the same the same glucose right that that was this nuptial gift in the traps and Technically, the science word, I just want to add this context, <laughs> is we stop the roaches from having sex, the cockroaches from having sex. We roach blocked them. And there, I've thought of all the ways to say that, and that's the best one. There's no better <laughs> way to go with it. I want to say, just as a point of ethics, that the males have changed, they changed the recipe, right? As, as Gabe said. Um, and, and that, they've also figured out how to hook themselves to the females even faster which scientists who have been asked about this uh, have these these developments say they're they're like kind of thrilling evolutionary adaptations but it's just letting <laughs> them commit sex crimes more efficiently it's like if kidnappers started buying like king size candy bars and driving lamborghinis instead of goofy white vans <laughs> Uh, I was curious if there's like in the cockroach community if the female cockroaches uh, who who don't like glucose like have a reputation, you know, like the gluten free mm. people. It's like oh, you can't take them anywhere. She's glucose averse, you know. Mm. Like I wonder if they talk they talk shit about each other, or if they like that's they when when they lo- when someone loves the glucose if they're like <laughs> oh yeah this, she's old they, school they love the yeah they're like she loves the glucose if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's my German accent. <laughs> It's like, hey, you stop roach shaming, okay? <laughs> yeah, it turns out that uh, cockroaches have adapted so quickly to humans' uh, willingness to interfere with their sex life. I don't know why we've been so willing to interfere with their sex lives. We've been putting the cop into copulatory and the nup into nuptials and the black <laughs> into cockroach. I just think that we are setting ourselves up for them to invent a new way of having sex that is way worse for us. <laughs> inevitably it's going to start being something that we like the smell of you know like it's going to be something that just turns us on and then we're going to be part of the whole cockroach mating process we're going down a bad pathway is what i think it's true and npr included videos of both of these the the female cockroach accepting the the nuptial gift and the, the female cockroach rejecting the nuptial gift and i'm not gonna lie they look the same to me <laughs> <laughs> more of that in the goggle feed now let's join tiff stevenson for a recent highlight from catharsis the bugle stables interview show which allows guests to scream into the abyss about all this shit 
the next section of the podcast is is called topical cream and that's where we apply some balm to a stingy news story that's got you all head up it doesn't have to be this week it could be in the last six months just something in the zeitgeist i'm sure you've i'm sure you've got something that you're angry about so so what's what's getting under what your skin what do you want what do you want it's all shit yep do you Fair. know what i mean it's got i mean it's just the fact that we've had three prime ministers in eight weeks that got my, do you know what I mean? From Johnson to Truss to Sunak. It was just like, whoa, whoa. it's just bananas. This is circus town. Like jury service, right? Everyone gets to go. Oh, eventually. wouldn't it be brilliant if that was true? <laughs> Everyone's yeah. got to go. Is it another Etonian? Oh, how did that happen? So the whole <laughs> thing, I think, and I think what gets me most, I mean, is the fact that the, the Tories just want to use racism and you know, stoke the fires of race going. It's Pakistani rape gangs. It's like, hang on a minute. 84% of grooming gangs in the UK are white. This is from a home office report, their own report. So when you say we will stop Pakistani rape gangs, Pakistani grooming gangs, um, you know, there's several things that you're doing. One is you're just stoking up the fires of racism and just going, you know, it's them what are doing it. They come over here taking our women. That's what this is. But actually what you're doing as well is you're ignoring the 84% of the young girls and young women who have been abused and you're leaving them aside for some cheap political point. How about we tackle all the grooming? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, you know, it, how about the police aren't you know just like why don't we do that just for starters you know the police's job is it the metropolitan police especially their job is to is to basically uphold the law that's what it is to enforce the law and so actually they could stay inside and do nothing and the legal situation would have improved yeah do you know what i mean so it's like that gets those are the things that really get me politically. Trump getting um arrested is just funny. But then you get people going, Oh no, but it's gonna turn him into a martyr. Yeah, but you know, if you have a rule of law, you have a rule of law. You know, that's how it works. So the rotation of prime ministers, I think, is a um last time I saw you, I said this. I think I mentioned the fact on stage that since nineteen seventy nine we have only ever had one elected British Prime Minister be thrown out of office by the general public, and that was John Major, right? Right. Now, choosing a prime minister and choosing a government is important. Then being able to get rid of them is equally important. So actually what they're saying is we know better. Yes, yeah. And what's interesting about that is that I think Boris will be beginning his comeback tour to office, that we're going to be on a rinse and repeat. You know, we've got sort of Trump pitching for 2024 and we've got Boris who is going to be slowly attempting to get back in. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to be so slowly. I mean, I think the thing about Johnson is he isn't, he, he, he is a sociopath and I think he's got just enough knowledge to know that he is. Yes. Right? And when he was in that committee meeting over the, the privileges thing, which was fantastic just to see his lawyer's reaction behind him where they just sat there just going, oh, f <laughs> you know. But what was interesting was they asked him a question and he just said, you could hear, you could almost hear the voices inside him going, shut up, be nice, try and be bloody nice, don't kill them, you know. <laughs> well, d don't show them who you really are. 
Yes. Which is incredibly entitled and narcissistic that go all the way back to his school reports where they were like, he doesn't seem to like to be told that he's got something wrong. Yeah. Or that he hasn't completed a task and he seems to be affronted that anyone would meet him with criticism. Yeah. And I think that that's the most kind of damning thing I've seen about Johnson that that, and it might've been led by donkeys put out a video that, that's, that takes him all the way through Bullingdon. But it was, it's a school report where it says when he's criticized, he's affronted by a, how dare you, you know, I'm going to be king of the world. So you don't get to criticize me. My friend, Martin Rosen, who's the cartoonist, um, he was cartoonist for the spectator. At one point, he used to do cartoon. He used to do the cover for the Spectator, and you need when you do a. a and this, he told me this story. He said, "Um, Johnson used to be editor of the Spectator, and he wanted to do the cartoon. But to get it right, you need to know what he's going to lead on. You need to know what's going to come up as the headlines. Da, 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 so you can put all the bits in the right space and get the cartoon to actually fit the space it needs to fit." And um, Johnson still wasn't making his mind up, going undecided, undecided. And like he was running out of time to be able to do this. Literally, the deadline was just moving in front of him. And Martin had enough and phoned up Johnson. And he said, right, have you made your mind up? He said, there's so many considerations. No, no, no. And Martin just went, stop this PG Woodhouse act shit and choose one. And he said there was a silence. And then Johnson said, this PG Woodhouse shit, as you called it, has served me very well thus far. Wow. An acknowledgement of it. Yeah. That it's all an act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Thank you for listening, Buglers. We will be back next week with issue 4,259 of the world's leading and only audio newspaper for a visual world. Until then, goodbye.